Good morning. In today's headlines, Category 4 Hurricane Ian hurdles towards Florida after putting the lights out in Cuba. 2.5 million Florida residents are being asked to evacuate. China is attempting to meddle in the upcoming midterm elections. Find out what Facebook's parent company Meta discovered on its social media platforms. Multiple Baltic Sea pipelines are damaged and Europe cries foul. Meanwhile, Germany backtracks on nuclear phase-out commitments. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the DEA has seized more than 10 million fake pills containing fentanyl, and that's just since May. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. It's Wednesday today, September 28th, and we start off the program with updates on Hurricane Ian as it approaches Florida. The storm is now a Category 4 hurricane. It's expected to make landfall as early as this afternoon. The forecast suggests it could hit south of Tampa Bay, somewhere between Sarasota and Naples. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more details. If you are in an evacuation zone, particularly in those southwest Florida counties, uh, you know, your time to evacuate is coming to an end. Uh, you need to evacuate now. Governor Ron DeSantis warned Florida residents in the Gulf Coast region of catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge. He also says there's potential for flash flooding and river flooding with 10 to 20 inches across the central and northeast parts of the state. DeSantis says power outages should be expected for millions of people. Authorities are urging more than 2.5 million residents to evacuate their homes for higher ground. You don't have to traverse all across the state of Florida. Uh, you need to get to higher ground. You need to get to structures that are safe. There are shelters open in all of these counties. Close to 60 Florida school districts canceled classes due to the hurricane. More than 175 evacuation centers are open statewide, many of them school buildings converted into shelters. The National Weather Service says winds are expected of up to 130 miles per hour. They are predicting as much as two feet of rain in the Tampa area on Florida's Gulf Coast on Wednesday and Thursday. And as it grows in size and continues to grow in size, it is going to spread a swath of multiple hazards across a good chunk of the Florida peninsula. If you're not on the direct path of the center, that doesn't mean that you're out of uh, harm's way. Officials say coastal flooding of up to 12 feet could occur from wind-driven high surf along Florida's western shoreline. In the Key West area, some homes have already flooded. Some officials worry a number of Florida residents are not taking the threat seriously. FEMA Chief Diane Criswell says Ian will hit a part of Florida that hasn't seen a major impact in nearly 100 years. People at a Key West pier were seen knee-deep in stormy waters, braving crashing waves to take pictures on Tuesday. Projections for storm-related damages range from $38 billion to more than $60 billion. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The White House says President Biden spoke with DeSantis last night to discuss how the federal government could help Florida prepare. DeSantis says FEMA has approved Florida's pre-landfall request. And parts of southeast Florida also already experiencing effects of the hurricane. At least two tornadoes touched down near the coast last night. One started in Miami Gardens and moved through to Cooper City. The other passed over North Perry Airport in Broward County. 
The tornado damaged over 15 airplanes and several hangars. Some of the smaller aircraft were flipped completely upside down around their sides. The airport is temporarily closed. Officials are assessing the damage. The tornadoes uprooted trees and caused some minor damage in other areas of Broward County. No related injuries were reported. A tornado watch was in effect until early this Wednesday morning in South Florida. Tornadoes can occur hundreds of miles from the center of a hurricane, and they can be short-lived and are very difficult to predict. And Hurricane Ian tore into Cuba earlier and knocked out its electric grid. Up until now, the island is still in the dark. The system had faltered for months already, and blackouts were an everyday occurrence across much of the island up until then. So the storm hit a system desperately in need of modernization. The countrywide blackout kicked the already exhausted Cubans while they were down. The hurricane hit Cuba at a time of dire economic crisis. Power outages and long-running shortages of food, medicine and fuel are likely to complicate efforts to recover from Ian's havoc. In other news, China is meddling in the upcoming U.S. midterm elections. Meta Platform says it removed fake China-based accounts targeting Americans with political content. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Meta's findings. Meta's social media platforms Facebook and Instagram took down a network of around 80 Chinese accounts involved in what company executives say was a political influence operation. They say the China-based propaganda operation was the first one they knew about and disrupted that focused on targeting users in the United States ahead of November's midterm elections. Meta reported the fake accounts posed as both liberal and conservative Americans in different states. The accounts posted political memes and commented on public figures' posts. The operation pushed messages on issues like gun rights and abortion. Meta gave one example of an account commenting on a Facebook post by Republican Senator Marco Rubio asking him to stop gun violence and using the hashtag RubioChildrenKiller. Most of the accounts were active from November 2021. The network was also active on Twitter. A Twitter spokesperson says the company is aware of Meta's report and has also taken down the accounts. Meta says the same network also set up fake accounts posing as people in the Czech Republic criticizing the Czech government on its approach to China. An executive from Meta says they do not have enough evidence to say who in China was behind the activity, but that the account stuck to a shift pattern that coincided with a 9 to 5, Monday to Friday work schedule during working hours in China. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And what feels to be a more tangible presence, an encounter with Chinese and Russian warships in the waters near Alaska. The U.S. Coast Guard ships ships spotted the foreign vessels while on a routine patrol. A total of six vessels were spotted, two Chinese and four Russian. The U.S. said the ships were operating within America's Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ. The zone covers an area of ocean extending over 200 miles from a country's territorial sea, and the nation has jurisdiction over the natural resources in that area. The warships were in a group formation, but later dispersed. The U.S. said it would continue to monitor the area to ensure the safety of U.S. vessels. The naval encounter comes a month after a warning from the head of NATO. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warned about China's and Russia's growing footprint in the Arctic. He said Russia established a new Arctic command and opened hundreds of Arctic military sites, including deepwater ports and airfields. Beijing is also laying its eyes on the Arctic. It plans to build the world's largest icebreaker. 
Stoltenberg said Beijing and Moscow have both pledged to intensify cooperation in the Arctic. He added that the partnership challenges the West's values and interests. And Vice President Kamala Harris delivered a speech aboard the USS Howard naval ship at Yokosuka Naval Base Wednesday, calling China's behavior in the East China Sea, South China Sea and Taiwan Strait disturbing. And we anticipate continued aggressive behavior from Beijing as it attempts to unilaterally undermine the status quo. The United States believes that peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait is an essential feature of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And we will continue to fly, sail, and operate undaunted and unafraid wherever and whenever international law allows. She's in the region right now to lead a presidential delegation for the state funeral of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and to meet with government officials from Japan, South Korea and Australia. After Japan, she will travel to South Korea where she's expected to visit the demilitarized zone, demilitarized zone excuse me, between North Korea and South Korea on Thursday. Now we take you to Europe, where three offshore lines of the Nord Stream gas pipeline system in the Baltic Sea sustained unprecedented damage in one day. Several European leaders and experts are calling the damage a result of deliberate action. The pipelines have been flashpoints in an escalating energy war between European capitals and Moscow. The incident overshadowed the inauguration of a long-awaited pipeline that will bring Norwegian gas to Poland. The Polish foreign minister speculated on Russian involvement. We are not in a position to reject the notion that this could be an element of Russian hybrid war against NATO. European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen said the leaks of the Nord Stream pipelines were caused by sabotage. She warned of the strongest possible response should active European energy infrastructure be attacked. Russia has agreed that sabotage was a possibility adding that the leaks undermined the continent's energy security. Maritime security specialist Johannes Peters said, When you look at the complexity of the attacks and uh, how difficult it is to carry, uh, carry out such an, such an act of sabotage, um, then it's most likely that a, um, a, state, a state actor is involved. He went on to say that Russia has both the capabilities and the motivation to sabotage the Nord Stream pipelines. The pipeline damage will scuttle any remaining expectations that Europe could receive gas via Nord Stream 1 before winter. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken sees a silver lining in the clouds of leaking gas. There is also a very significant opportunity to do two things. One, to finally end the dependence uh, of Europe on Russian energy, and also to accelerate the, the transition to, uh, to renewables. Meanwhile, Germany has made a U-turn on its planned phase-out of nuclear power by the end of this year. It will soon decide whether to extend the lives of two of its remaining nuclear power plants. But it will definitely keep them in operation as reserves until April of next year. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, a doctor who used to encourage people to get COVID-19 vaccines now says people should be more informed about the risks. And a U.S. company conducts its first ever electric plane test flight. Find out how it went and what the company plans for the future right here on NTD Good Morning.
We're back with some alarming news. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says that the DEA seized enough fentanyl to kill 36 million Americans since May. That includes more than 10 million fake pills containing fentanyl. Families should have open and honest conversations about the deadly consequences of fentanyl. These cartels are responsible for virtually all of the fentanyl. They're sourcing these precursor chemicals from China. They run and oversee the sales of fentanyl on social media and in our communities, our cities, and our towns. Garland and the DA warned that Mexican drug cartels are the main culprits for deadly fentanyl sold in the U.S. They say cartels are manufacturing fake pills that are designed to look exactly like brand name drugs. That includes drugs for pain, attention deficit disorder or anxiety. But instead, many contain deadly amounts of fentanyl. The cartels are also marketing rainbow-colored pills that are designed to look like candy or sidewalk chalk. They say rainbow fentanyl seems to be a new method for selling fentanyl to children and young people. And recently, the FDA authorized Pfizer and Moderna's updated COVID-19 booster shots. But a British doctor published a paper detailing evidence that two of the most widely used COVID-19 vaccines may have more risks than benefits. Entity's Arlene Richards reports. Last week, President Joe Biden declared the pandemic is over, yet the government ordered over 100 million updated COVID-19 booster shots made by Pfizer and Moderna. But demand for the shots is low. Dr. Asim Malhotra used to promote the vaccines until his father suffered cardiac arrest six months after getting vaccinated. That led Malhotra to research information that revealed Pfizer and Moderna vaccines may have more risk than benefits. He says he broke down the information and published it in the Journal of Insulin Resistance. As part of his research, Dr. Malhotra reviewed a study published in the journal Vaccine on August 31. That study reanalyzed data gathered from the original clinical trials for the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines. And what was interesting was the rate of a serious adverse event from the original Pfizer and Moderna trials using their mRNA technology was higher than the, the rate of hospitalization from COVID-19 in the placebo group. Now, this is shocking. Absolutely. This is a bombshell, as far as I'm concerned. What does that suggest for me as a clinician, as a doctor, as a researcher? It suggests to me that when the vaccine was rolled out, it was likely, it was potentially, let me, let me be, it was potentially almost or likely for most people going to cause more harm than good. Pfizer trial participants who received the vaccine were 36% more at risk of a severe adverse event, while Moderna trial participants were 6% more at risk. Severe adverse events are defined as events that resulted in serious conditions such as death, inpatient hospitalization, and persistent disability. People are just being told, take the vaccine, it'll help you reduce hospitalization. No one's broken down the information in a way that's, that allows people to make an informed decision at all. No one. The FDA has not done that. In a September 5th article, the Epoch Times reported the FDA said it didn't think the reanalysis proved anything new about the safety of the vaccines. The agency questioned some of the methods, such as not including COVID-19 as a serious adverse event. NTD reached out to Pfizer and Moderna, but they didn't return requests for comment. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. 
A U.S. company has conducted its first electric plane test flight. The prototype took off from Grant County International Airport yesterday. It marks a major milestone for a company that aims to carry commercial passengers within several years. Here's Entity's Cost Temenes with more. Tuesday's flight was a key step for Washington-based aviation aircraft. The battery-powered plane named Alice flew for eight minutes in central Washington state. Aviation CEO Gregory Davis says the flight went exactly as intended. Just a wonderful experience for everyone who was here. Um, we were able to witness history uh, in the making. The plane flew at an altitude of 3,500 feet. Davis says that their business goal at first is to have planes for short distances between 150 to 250 miles, with charging taking about 35 minutes. So we're looking at developing an airplane that will fly, you know, one to two hours, which is typical for that segment. So, you know, 150 to 250 nautical miles with reserve. And, and that's what we're that's what we're targeting for our, our initial entry into service. Aviation is aiming to deliver passenger and cargo electric planes by 2027. Davis says this goal will depend on advancement battery technology. The company already has orders for their planes from regular airlines. Aviation will build two more planes for federal certification, which they hope will happen in 2025. Cost MNS, NTD News. Next, we have the story of a man who paddled from California to Hawaii. His nearly three-month trip has made him the second person ever to finish this journey. And the world-famous skunk train. We have the story of the historical train ride after the break. Welcome back. The Bay Area man that went out on a solo kayaking journey through the Pacific has finished his trek. It took him nearly three months to kayak from California to Hawaii. And today's David Lem talked to the adventurer before his departure and heard from him again upon his arrival. <laughs> Serial Deramo completed his first solo kayak crossing from Monterey, California to Hilo Bay in Hawaii after 91 days and 9 hours. It is paradise because after 90 days of eating only freeze-dried meal, having fresh fruits, a good pineapples and fresh fish bouquet, and anything fresh is good. <laughs> and then, you know, it's Hawaii, so it's the best destination for me. The trip was all human-powered. That makes him the second person to do so. I had created a little world of myself with my boat, my routine. Every day I had the waves, the connection with the ocean, I had the birds, I even had fish I was talking to, the mahi mahi. And then, you know, the dolphin, the turtles, and then even the clouds, I, they had a little dance that I, I knew I could recognize. After 90 days, I was in symbiosis with this whole environment. The French-born adventurist faced setbacks. Despite this, he found solutions and continued on the ocean. Like a sunrise, it's like so peaceful and it's soft, soft. Like swell that was like calming. And it was overwhelming. And then a bird came to see me, like in the middle of nowhere. That was like the universe speaking. Seriously, it was like, it's so simple, it's so beautiful. He blogged about his journey and said people followed, 
and connect it to his attitude of living life to its fullest. I started to have a very spiritual journey. You know, when you're disconnected from everything, no social media, no internet, no phone, no email, no friends, you have space, you decluttered your whole mind. And then I started to think about like ideas about life, about what does it mean to love? What does it mean to consider other people like brothers and sisters? And, and I wrote all this on my blog. Now that the journey is over, Deramo and his boat are headed back to California separately. He plans to recover his weight and flexibility to get back to full strength. He doesn't plan to sell his boat anytime soon, if ever. David Lau, NTD News, California. And Cyril told us that his family flew to Hawaii to see him, and when he hugged his mom, she said she can finally sleep at night now. Yeah, well, that's understandable. I mean, think about it. A one-man boat out in the middle of the ocean, and what if the wind's not on your side? Yeah, it's a pretty dangerous trip. Yeah, hats off to him. Okay, from ocean to land, have you heard about the skunk train? Well, I just hope that it's not what I think it is. <laughs> okay, well, don't let the name fool you. This world-famous ride takes visitors back in time through the redwoods of Northern California. NTD's Eileen Ng went for a ride. Let's take a look. Along Northern California's Pacific Coast is another day for the world-famous historic skunk train, attracting visitors to Fort Bragg from near and far. This is Stothy Pappas, the general manager of the skunk train. And this is his locomotive, the Santa Cruz Portland Cement No. 2. He brought it out for the Days of Steam event. It was built in 1909. Having my locomotive here is sort of primed the pump to say yes, people love the steam locomotive, they love the history that it embodies, and so it's time to rebuild our own. The skunk train's peculiar name came from how bad its exhaust smelled. When the California Western Railroad bought its rail buses that were gasoline-powered, uh, everybody sort of derisively in the local communities called it the skunks. You know, oh, those skunk cars that they use to haul people now. Um, but the management at the time actually embraced that. I mean, hey, you know, it, it's a good nickname, right? Okay, so you call it a skunk. Well, let's make a logo of a skunk. So Mr. Skunk, the, you know, the, the mascot was created. Pappas explained the train started in 1885 as a lumber-hauling railroad. It served as part of the Union Lumber Company. Over the years, the tracks stretched further east until it connected to the city of Willits. This railroad was in many ways the lifeblood of the community here in Fort Bragg for so many decades. It uh, hauled all the goods and services in from the outside world and hauled the timber out. That made most of the money until the uh, lumber mill shut down in about 2002. It still carries freight, but its economy has changed to focus on passengers. People discovered the beauty of the Redwoods during the second half of the 20th century. Visitors can go on an hour-long round trip through the Redwood Forest. The train moves at 15 miles per hour, so people can enjoy the scenery both inside and out. And the cars date back to as early as the 1900s. So these are all very historic, the interiors, they have the original walkover seats in them, you know, so the Hale and Kilbourne walkover seats, it's, a, it's an authentic experience of being on an old time train. 
Because if you talk to anybody sort of in this part of the world and you say, I work for the skunk train, everybody says, I remember riding that with my parents or my grandparents or I took my kids there. And so there's such a legacy here of people, you know, cross-generation coming to ride this train to see the scenery. It's a magical institution. It's one of the flagship institutions in the entire uh, Heritage Railroad industry and it feels great to get to be a part of it. The skunk train also departs from Woolitz on a longer two-hour round-trip journey into the Redwoods. Eileen Ang, NTD News, Fort Bragg, California. You know, it reminds me of the trains I used to collect as a kid. I had a track that went around my bedroom, raised up near the ceiling. I would operate it from my bunk bed. Wow. And, yeah, and one time we had this setup that filled almost the entire living room. It had mountains with train tunnels and ice skating rinks. Wow, that really sounds like a kid's dream. But you know what also sounds like a dream to me right now? What? Bring your pet to work day. Oh, that does sound fun. Right? Well, that's what a Colombian lawmaker did. He brought his full-grown horse to Congress yesterday. But to be fair, he did it with a cause. It was to show his support for the country's farmers. His name is Alirio Barrera, and he is a member of Congress. He walked into the legislative palace yesterday with his white horse on a leash. Needless to say, he was surrounded by news crews. His gig was to protest against initiatives that could prohibit certain activities involving horses such as cattle herding. Starting this week, Colombian Congress members will be allowed to take their pets to work with them. You know, that is a unique way to protest. I bet it really got his colleagues' attention. And you know what? I really like his Colombian Ruana sweater. Yeah, and I just really like his horse. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, fella. <laughs> on that note, we're ending it here, everyone. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. If you like, thanks for watching. Have a great day. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.